Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens, Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization at the IISS in London. Europe is slowly but surely turning its attention to the Indo-Pacific region. France, Germany, the UK, the Netherlands, and the European Union have all published Indo-Pacific strategies, which foresee a greater economic, political, and security relationship with the region. Military engagement of European powers in the maritime domain has received particular attention in 2021, following the deployment of the US, UK, and the Netherlands navies in the Carrier Strike Group 2021 voyage, the deployment of the German frigate the Bayern, and a continued French naval presence in the region as well. But where can European navies best contribute to security and the rules-based international order in the Indo-Pacific? And should we look beyond just the UK and France as lead European actors? How can European powers coordinate their engagement better? And how much has AUKUS derailed the possibility of collaboration between Europeans, the Americans, and Australia in the future? To discuss the realities, practicalities, and prospects of European naval engagement in the Indo-Pacific region, I'm joined today by three expert IISS colleagues, Nick Childs, Ewan Graham, and Hugo Desi. Nick Childs is a Senior Fellow for Naval Forces and Maritime Security at the IISS based in London, where he's responsible for the Institute's analysis of naval forces and maritime security, and for the data on sea power capabilities published in the IISS Military Balance book. Ewan Graham is a Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security and is responsible for furthering research within the IISS on defense and security in Northeast Asia and the Western Pacific. He also supports the IISS Shangri-La Dialogue and the Fullerton Forum. And making his debut on the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Hugo Desi. Hugo is a research analyst for defense and military analysis. He conducts research on equipment data for the Military Balance Book and the Military Balance Plus database. And his research focuses in particular on maritime equipment data, naval affairs, and maritime security, as well as France's Indo-Pacific strategy. So Hugo, Ewan, and Nick, welcome onto the show. Nick, let's start with the Carrier Strike Group deployment to the Indo-Pacific. We've spoken about this before on uh, Sound Strategic, but for the benefit of our audience who might have missed that episode, could you perhaps give a little briefer on what the strategic thinking behind Carrier Strike Group 2021 was and how this fits into wider UK policy towards the region? Thanks, Maya. Yes, well, um... I think the carrier strike group was meant to be uh, emblematic, if you like, both of the fact that this is a, a new or renewed significant uh, power projection capability that the UK has invested in. But it also comes at a time when the UK is also raising its gaze, if you like, globally. Global Britain is the brand name, but particularly out to the Indo-Pacific. So I think uh, the carrier strike group is meant to be emblematic of both that renewed capability, but also this enhanced kind of focus on and desire to engage and become more committed into the Indo-Pacific region. I wanted to ask what was notable about the deployment and the exercises that it conducted during its time in the Indo-Pacific. What exactly uh, were the exercises focused on and how did regional joint exercises, do you think, uh, contribute to perhaps the, the goals of the Royal Navy in the region? 
I think the idea, one of the reasons uh, to have a group like this is it, it, it can work together in an aggregated form at a very high level. And I think some of those exercises were to do with being able to operate at range with other significant partners, particularly people like the US and, and Japan, and, and show a capability to operate as a, a you know, complex, high-end, high-end sort of task group. And I think that also sent some, some significant messaging uh, at the strategic level. But there was also some disaggregated, dispersed activities and, and lower-level uh, engagements with partners. So I think COVID and other things got in the way of some of the defense, defense diplomacy that was planned. But overall, it was a sort of rich kind of tapestry of things. You and you've watched the deployment uh, of the carrier strike group from the region's perspective. Um, what did you find most notable about the deployment of uh, the carrier strike group? My takeaway is, in that broader context, the carrier strike group deployment mattered most to the UK. I think of all the countries, there's no question about that. For, again, for the reasons that Nick has mentioned, but in broader context, this was an extraordinary year. Uh, in which there was a, a rather um, surprising conglomeration of allied and partnered naval cooperation stepping back. You know, fr from the high-level perspective, this was a, a year where the operational challenges of COVID were maximized, and yet there was uh, a pretty impressive ability to coordinate, cooperate, and deploy. And that's been a long time in the planning. So I think the, the the positive takeaway is that this largely came off despite the huge curveball of, of COVID being being thrown at it. Yes, there were challenges of ship breakdowns and, and whatnot, and we can maybe get to that later on. But I think the, the strategic messaging side was, was uppermost. One little caveat to that, if we're talking about the exercises, the five power defense arrangements, which centers on Malaysia and Singapore, was a slightly odd ellipsis to that program of exercises that the carrier did not take part in the FPDA exercises. And there are various reasons for that, overmatch of capability being, being one of them. Personally, I think it was a bit of an opportunity missed. It would have been nice to have seen the UK involved in this once in a, you know, a very long time carrier strike group deployment. It's quite remarkable that the United Kingdom decided to have the HMS Queen Elizabeth sail to the Indo-Pacific, not just east of Suez, but east of Malacca, on a maiden deployment, which is something France hasn't been doing in the 20 years it's been operating the Charles de Gaulle nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. So the UK has been setting a, a precedent and perhaps a new standard, not just for itself, but for other European powers in what they can or cannot do in the region. And perhaps it will spark a healthy competition between them, mostly between France and the UK, regarding what they can do or are willing to do in the region in the future. How much of the uh, carrier strike group's voyage to the Indo-Pacific was about signaling the importance and perhaps usefulness of global Britain to countries in Southeast Asia, Japan, Australia, traditional allies and partners? And how much of it was aimed at signaling to China? Well, I'll, I'll pick that one up. I think it was a bit of both. It was about UK. It was about UK 
national interest, but it was also about engaging with with partners. And I think the partners themselves, uh, and particularly the, the ones you're talking about at the top level, the 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 US and and, and Japan and the like, and Australia, um, you know, are keen to have engagement so long as it's committed engagement at, at a high level. And the UK was able to demonstrate a high level of capability, albeit with some some limitations that we can we, we can talk about and i think that was significant but there was also there was also an element of messaging about uk engagement in and concern about security stability and things like freedom of navigation um and uh, the uk defense secretary talked about being a kind of confident assertion of, of, of these issues but but not confrontational and there was a lot of argument around and, and, and debate around would the carrier sail through the taiwan strait for example um and that would have been a very high level of statement so i think there was some calibration there uh, and that is why you saw uh, you know a frigate deploy through through the taiwan strait i just add a couple of points to um what nick has said i think the uh, the, from what we know, uh, the peak of, of tensions, if you like, on the whole deployment was the Black Sea. And the South China Sea, if anything, was a slight anticlimax to that. But I think that's a, that's a fortuitous anticlimax because it shows that uh, the signal was um, was anticipated by China and that the presence of a large, well-defended carrier strike group is, is one that the, the, the People's Liberation Army Navy treated with, with professional respect. And uh, there wasn't the kind of um, confrontation that a, a lot of the media had, had stoked in, in advance. Yes, they were tailed. Uh, yes, there was... Um, press coverage in the Chinese media that, that reacted in angry terms, but uh, actually on the water, it was a, a, a rather scripted uh, encounter between the, the two navies. The other point to make is that the carrier strike group deployment, although UK led, was not entirely UK constituted. Uh, there was a Dutch ship in, embedded within that, and the US Marines were um, a key part of the the carrier air wing, and there was a, a U.S. Uh, destroyer escorting it throughout its entire uh, passage through the Indo-Pacific. So that itself sends an important uh, message of of multinational cooperation, European, North American, straddling uh, NATO. The rea- reality is that um, this was uh, in broader context a a, a, a multinational deployment, uh, one that also sent, I think, an important signal of of intra-European uh, unity and also um, transatlantic unity. Maybe just in terms of lessons learned from the deployment, Nick, you mentioned that there were um, some kind of post-deployment analyses. What what would you point to here? Well, I think. Um... This was, if you like, um, the UK and the Royal Navy in particular re-entering the um, uh, business of you know high-level task group deployments at long range, and they've done it in the past. But um, but there's been a significant gap, and as attention has gone elsewhere, and and 
resources have been strained. So it was rolling that back out again, uh, but also at a, a very significant level, including the, you know, the scale of the deployment, the fact that it was multinational, as Ewan has mentioned, uh, that it was deploying fifth-generation aircraft capabilities. So I think uh, uh, there will be lessons about um, the challenges of that in the future. There are some capability gaps or weaknesses in the in the deployment. Um, there's a, a helicopter airborne early warning capability that is on board that's still under trial. And, and I think uh, the, the, uh, the sense one gets is it's, that's struggling a bit. So I think they will be looking at that. They will be looking at the whole logistics of that. And they will be looking also, I think, at, again, what, what, what Ewan mentioned was how much uh, commitment and, and resources did that suck up uh, for the UK in particular uh, and um, and therefore, you know, how quick and easy will it will it be to regenerate that and 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 repeat that? It is it is not easy. Uh, I'm reminded of a a, a phrase that uh, General Petraeus used about um, operations in Iraq, and he said essentially it was all hard and it was hard all the time. And I think that kind of uh, you know high high range high level carrier strike group. Deployment is is not a, not a, an easy undertaking, um, but it does uh, the messaging it delivers in terms of capability is important. Before we move on to other European powers, naval presence in uh, the Indo-Pacific, I wanted to quickly ask you and what the reaction was and the assessment was from countries in the Indo-Pacific region about the carrier strike group. From from what I can tell, uh, you know the, the key bases were were touched on the deployment. So Japan, South Korea, Singapore, uh, India, these are the the key players that the the UK wants to uh, engage with in in a broader sense. And and naval diplomacy uh, is a form of diplomacy. It's not only about the the military uh, dimension. I think Japan, for, for my money, is the UK's closest Asian partner, so I think it was appropriate that the the anchor leg, if you could call it that, was a visit up to Japan. There were a few wrinkles, as I understand it, logistically with that, which underlined the importance of the UK's ongoing effort to negotiate a, a reciprocal access agreement that will make such visits easier in, in future with Japan. Uh, and that's, again, part of the, the learning experience. Uh, until you show up, you, you don't really make the point to the same extent. Uh, with Korea, um, there is prospective interest in, in a, a light carrier uh, development for the Korean Navy. And we understand that the Koreans are interested in, in learning from the, the UK on the technological front. So there, there may be some broader spin-offs there, partly commercial, but with some uh, broader uh, diplomatic uh, payoffs. Uh, in Southeast Asia, as I've said, um, I think the FPDA was was um, a slight ellipsis in, in exercise terms, but bilaterally, uh, Singapore and Malaysia both did exercise with the carrier group on the way in and on the way out. Of course, uh, we can't um, eliminate China from the calculation. That's a much harder read. What was, what was China's takeaway from this? Well, the fact that they maintained uh, a respectful distance from the carrier group, I guess, does say something that the 
the People's Liberation Army Navy. However, um, however combative the propaganda is at a at a at a military level, there is a I think a healthy understanding that uh, you don't get in the way of a, a multinational carrier strike group um, because there are real risks involved. Uh, we haven't seen. Um, I think you know any major deterioration in relations as as a result. This was priced in, and I think that's the way to view it. Is that uh, the whole point of this is is to set a sort of regularity of a drumbeat, if you like, of of multinationals in the region who are not the U.S. to make the point to China that this is not just a binary Washington Beijing calculation, but the interests of of regional and extra regional partners. Uh, are are in the mix. So maybe to return to the point that both you and Nick raised before, from the perspective of the region following this carrier um, strike group deployment, is is more expected of the United Kingdom than can in reality be contributed to the region. Yes, there is a, a risk that the UK, in having underperformed up until 2018, now uh, over delivers on expectations and. Um, and has to match that in, in coming years. I think the key answer to that is the fact that the UK has decided in parallel to forward deploy two much smaller uh, vessels from the Royal Navy, offshore patrol vessels, which will be here. I think they will answer the, the, the key question around persistence because they will remain in the region uh, for for the, uh, the short to medium term. Uh, but I think the... Uh, fly-by-night question of a carrier strike group is, is, is going to be there. The UK can't do this on a, on a very regular basis. There is the littoral response group, which is the amphibious uh, expeditionary uh, component that the Royal Navy has, has reconstituted. Uh, and if, if that is in a, in a position to uh, deploy to at least part of the Indo-Pacific, uh, in 2023, I think that will go some way to to answering the question. Just to pick up on that, I think I think that's right. The key value, in, in in a way, as far as the UK's commitment is concerned, from a regional perspective, is uh, that it is a commitment and it is a persistent commitment. So this tapestry of at the lower level, um, the uh, patrol vessels that are deploying uh, into the region for a significant period, that will be supplemented subsequently by um, frigates um, when they new frigates when they come online the littoral uh, response group which is a slightly higher level of, of capability centered on the on the Indian Ocean but potentially um, uh, swinging out to the to the region uh, further further afield um, is another part of that tapestry with the, with the carrier strike group or like high level capability, pulsing as the as the navy likes to say uh, into the region um you know periodically but also uh, the, uh, the the by by implication that that level of capability is there in the background so that's the thinking um but there are also you know global britain is you know implies not just the indo-pacific but but other things as well so there are things pulling in all sorts of different directions so the test over time is is whether that that tapestry of of capabilities adds up as far as the region itself is concerned. Uh, perhaps a quick note on the fact that as the US uh, stand ready to do more in the Indo-Pacific and in Asia-Pacific, 
um, in general, European navies will have to do more and more in and around Europe, and they will have to balance these uh, pre-existing duties and commitments to the Mediterranean, to the Black Sea, uh, to the North Atlantic, and even to the Persian Gulf, with any ambition that they may or may not have uh, for the Indo-Pacific itself. Um, and doing so might be might still be the biggest challenge there is to playing a bigger role in the Pacific for a navy like the French or the British one. That's an excellent point. And I'm glad you brought up the French Navy because we'll now turn our focus to uh, the French presence in the Indo-Pacific. Hugo, France considers itself an Indo-Pacific country um, and as such places a high value on its Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, which it has published a few years ago. So how does France see its role in the Indo-Pacific specifically? Um, I think France's position for now is a bit awkward because, as you say, France likes to uh, present itself as an Indo-Pacific country, which it is in a way because it has territories in the region, but it's obviously not in the same sense as China is or the South Korea is. Um, however, having those uh, territories in the Indo-Pacific, so mostly La Réunion in the Indian Ocean and French Polynesia and Nucleidonia in the Pacific Ocean, means that France has a permanent presence in the region, which uh, obviously can be utilized by the country uh, to gather more influence uh, in, the, in the Pacific as a whole. Uh, however, with something like 5,000 soldiers, uh, 20 aircrafts, and less than uh, seven frigates and patrol ships in the region for one of the biggest EEZ in the world, uh, these forces, however impressive they might be on paper, are in fact already overworked uh, as it is. And so rather uh, counterintuitively, what really makes the French influence or impact in the region is are rather the assets it can bring from metropolitan France. Um, however, having said all of that, the fact that France all territories in the region has allowed the country to present itself as a semi-resident player and maybe to avoid being accused of uh, intruding into a region to which it shouldn't really belong to, um, especially as we as we know that this narrative can be used by China, for instance, to try and raise the uh, political cost of operating in the Indo-Pacific. Ewan, how do countries in the region view France? Do they view France as an Indo-Pacific player? Well, that's something that France says um, at the start and end of every speech. So I, I think the message has, has been, uh, it's not the fault of, of repetition. Um, some do, some don't. Uh, as I said, the, the Japan I would characterize as the, the UK's closest Asian partner at the moment. I think India is, is France's closest Asian partner, and the emphasis is, is likely to be on the Indian Ocean. That's where France has territory, uh, mainly on the West, but in both parts of, of the Indian Ocean. Um, the big wrinkle in this currently, of course, is, is the spat with Australia. And, and that's difficult for France strategically, not just politically, because France has territory in the South Pacific. One of the attractions to France of, of the close partnership with Australia was that it, it made sense uh, because uh, New Caledonia and, and Tahiti weren't annexed portions of, of French territory. Uh, there was a sort of con, you know contiguity with, with Australia as a, as a partner that made sense in, in the context of a, an Indo-Pacific uh, strategy, which, which President Macron um, without coincidence, uh, announced in Sydney. I think France is certainly part of the of the mix. I think um, the danger for France is 
the old one, which is it is sort of the outlier amongst the 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 the, the Western partners, uh, partly in, partly out, uh, and I think uh, an orphaned French military presence in the Indo-Pacific doesn't count for much. Uh, as a former French chief of navy himself admitted, China adds the equivalent of a French navy in new build every four years. So uh, France and, and the other European partners and the United States need to work together. I think the French-Indian uh, relationship is, is one that uh, has a natural uh, momentum to it. Uh, and the fact that they that India is outside of the the, the U.S. alliance system makes it um, easier to to compartmentalize that that relationship. So, so I anticipate that that um, France isn't going anywhere. Uh, it it is part of the region. It has skin in the game in a way that the U.K. does not. Uh, it has population there and, and and territory of a of a of a significantly greater extent. But in order to secure that, it will need uh, to find partners. And I think that that strategic logic will in, uh, inevitably uh, reassert itself. So maybe, Hugo, returning to the question of the submarine deal and uh, the response to AUKUS by the French, is the strong reaction that we've seen from Paris truly just about the deal? Or are there broader and deeper tensions at play here that, that contribute to this response? There are many ways to answer that question. I think in part, it's um, part of a bigger issue that France has in its relationship with the UK for various reasons and its relationship with the US, again, for various reasons. And that usually goes way beyond the Indo-Pacific. Perhaps to um, uh, focus my attention to purely the uh, Franco-Australian relationship, I think there is, of course, a, a first level of understanding, which is that losing a market, a, a big one, at, at uh, in addition to that, is never something that you are happy to to hear about. Um, but yes, it goes beyond that because it, it was linked to a form of prestige uh, attached to the country, attached to its uh, defense industry, um, questioning the quality of the products it can deliver and how it can deliver them. Um, I remember reading at the time that France had the right to be angry, but not a right to be silly. Um, and I think that's the crux of the issue. Um, yes, the anger was probably justified, probably not because of AUKUS uh, per se, but the way AUKUS was announced. But moving past that, uh, rebuilding bridges, not just with the US, the UK and Australia, but with other partners in the region, should be a priority for France. And I think I agree with you and what he said about um, France, is, France as skin in the game, can't ignore that fact. Uh, fact, that fact is stubborn and France will go, go back to its old habits in the region soon enough. Um, the one good thing about AUKUS from a French perspective is that it might help the country move past uh, its own geography, in a sense, and maybe uh, bring its attention to other partners that in the past were not really considered as uh, important as they maybe should have, uh, especially Japan, especially South Korea and Indonesia. Um, in addition to India, um, who remains the last strategic partner of France in the region now that Australia is gone. And where do you think France can play a particular role in the Indo-Pacific within this um, wider tapestry of like-minded and European engagement? 
I think France is likely to try and play a card that it's well, it it traditionally liked so far, which is to present itself as a country that is close to the US and the UK and the rest of Europe and the Western world, but also a bit of a, a side player that can accommodate various demands in the region without uh, making anyone commit too much to one side or the other, however ambiguous that stance might be or questionable even. Um, that, of course, is something that India uh, values tremendously. Uh, but I think it could also be appreciated by countries like Indonesia uh, in the future. Um, however, um, France in recent years has taken an increasingly confrontational stance in the region, uh, further angering China, which is something that France, for one reason or another, was trying not to do that much in the past. Uh, we've seen that with the deployment of a nuclear submarine to the region, uh, including to South China Sea, and more recently, the deployment of an intelligence collection vessel uh, that sailed throughout, uh, through sorry, the uh, Taiwan Strait. Uh, again, this is something France wouldn't have done just a couple of years ago. And this is, in my opinion, clearly both the result of that healthy competition that I've uh, uh, talked, talked about earlier between France and the UK, but maybe also an attempt at showing countries like Japan, countries like uh, South Korea, that France stands ready to do more, would like to do more. Um, whether or not this will continue following AUKUS, uh, we'll have to, to see for ourselves in the future. One of the challenges for, for France as, as a continuing uh, central EU member is that when the UK left, it took with it about 50% of the military capability with it. and. Um, that has uh, has has left a an ongoing challenge for France that um, it, it really hasn't yet processed how to how to deal with. But here's a challenge for, for France, if you like. Um, when Jean-Yves uh, Le Drian was uh, defence minister, he, he uh, promised at the Shangri-La dialogue that France would uh, take a coordinating role amongst uh, EU navies uh, in the region, and I think that. That challenge remains live and, and useful. Uh, and we have a, a, a commitment from the German Navy to continue deploying naval assets beyond uh, the Bayern frigate that, that is there this year. Uh, and there is a distinctly Northern European flavor to the, the, the navies that are deploying to uh, the Indo-Pacific this year. France, of course, has a, a Mediterranean coastline one thing a challenge France uh, could very usefully deliver on would be to persuade Spain and Italy, which in their own right are not insignificant naval powers, to join them and send an asset to the Indo-Pacific, not simply for sales promotion purposes, but as a, a, an EU strategic signal. Uh, I think that would be a, a very useful uh, leadership role that uh, France is uniquely placed to deliver. Yeah, just to pick up on the, to sort of open the aperture on, on, on Europe, as it were, and I fully endorse what um, both uh, Hugo and, and, and Ewan have said, uh, that, uh, I mean, one of the interesting things was the rolling out of an, of an EU Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, which, um, uh, you know, highlighted the fact that the Indo-Pacific is increasingly seen as of strategic significance to Europe and to, and, and, and to the EU, and, and also parading the... Um, the thought that, uh, given all of that, that uh, 
one of the things the EU should explore is ensuring that there is an enhanced kind of naval deployments uh, by member states into the region. And I think, uh, you know, there is this sense that there there is common ground that for for Europeans, the Indo-Pacific and stability in the Indo-Pacific and security in the Indo-Pacific is 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 of rising importance. There there, there is a growing stake there, um, but there isn't consensus on um, what to do about it and, and and where the different policies of the different countries are on on engagement in the Indo-Pacific and and frankly also in terms of relations with China specifically. Um, on top of that, there is the issue of capability what what can they actually deliver uh, and and you know the uk and, and france are at the, uh, the leading edge of being able to deploy others uh, struggle in, in in this respect the german deployment of the bayern uh, is interesting it has been balanced and nuanced and uh, there was, was a bit of a sense of uh, you know germany wasn't quite sure what message it was wanting to send there was some talk of a china port visit at at, at, at one point and then china essentially said no um so 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 there's there's a, a tiptoeing out there of what germany will or will, will will not do in the future yes italy and spain have deployed but it's, it was more in pursuit of arms sales essentially so the question will be can that come together more in the future and uh, you know, how do you balance that and and how do you um, engage with other critical allies and for a lot of Europeans you know what does it mean to be a critical ally of the United States is it to be alongside uh, in areas where uh, the US is is uh, setting priorities like the Indo-Pacific or, or is it to be holding the ring elsewhere but I don't think it is going to be enough for the United States just for, um, um, for for allies to say, you know, we'll mind the shop elsewhere while you uh, uh, deal with the Indo-Pacific. And that is the, um, uh, if you like, the implication of this growing talk in the US, which was, again, um, um, highlighted by the US Defence Secretary uh, uh, Lloyd Austin uh, at the, full, the Fullerton lecture for, for the IISS, this, this notion of integrated d- uh, deterrence that... Um, you know, uh, the, the, that means a, a number of things, but it means more engagement with integration with allies and partners as well coming together. And there's a sort of paradox to this, which is multinational military coalitions have an inherent inefficiency uh, premium attached to them. But the signaling that they bring from being concerted is something that uh, the autocratic powers cannot match, except in the limited sense that China and Russia get closer to, to together. And we've seen a bit of that, actually, with the uh, the joint sail around Japan that happened uh, just a few weeks ago, which I think was you know, clearly in context of, a, of a, an attempted answer uh, to the, the question posed by so much allied and, and partnered uh, naval, naval presence. Um, Europe does have significant aggreg- capabilities in aggregate. It really needs to sort out, um, not just at the EU level, but at the NATO level. Uh, the, the, the UK chief of Navy is in Paris today uh, to discuss with his counterpart, trying to get the relationship back on track. I think uh, that, that shows an understanding that the professional military level uh, that the Europeans cannot act alone they really only count uh, in unison uh, and the, uh, getting the French uh, uh, and, and UK 
Navy to Navy relationship, which has historically been very strong. Uh, and I've seen that personally with uh, Royal Marine, um, Royal Marine aircraft mounted on board a French um, uh, landing helicopter dock uh, in Australia a, a couple of years ago. And at the same time, with all this spat in the background, the UK, the UK is providing airlift that is critical to supporting the French operation in the Sahel. So, you know, the political frictions are at some remove from the reality, which is at a, at, a, at a military level, the cooperation is ongoing and deep. And I think that that logic will inevitably re reassert itself once we've got a few elections out of the way. So I'm hearing quite an optimistic note from, from you, Ewan. Is that shared uh, by you, Hugo, and Nick with regards to whether you think uh, post-AUKUS this collaboration coordination between European powers uh, can be fruitful and continue? Um, I would agree with uh, Ewan. Um, France's chief of the defense staff has been speaking to the Senate just a few days ago and the messages was pretty clear. Yes, we have good reasons not to be happy or excited about what AUKUS means for France. But um, in, in, in the world as it is today, we need to work with the US, we need to work with the UK, we will need to work with Australia uh, in the future. And, what, and that's what truly matters. Um, I believe we've seen a level of pragmatism coming from the armed forces that is so far unmatched by the political world. Uh, but maybe those hope the political world might still catch up with the, with the military and um, that on that domain. Um, we've also seen declaration from Macron, President Macron in France, and Minister Parley, uh, both saying that this is unlikely to change anything to France's commitment to the region. So again, the message is pretty clear. I think the only impact, as far as we are concerned, and maybe for the next few years, will be that cooperation between France and the UK, France and Australia, in the Indo-Pacific itself, will be reduced to minimum. Outside of the Indo-Pacific as well, well, as you said, it's already back, back on track because we can't really do without it. Um, and this will not prevent other European countries to, from cooperating with either Navy, the Royal Navy and the, and the French Navy, without feeling like they're compromising themselves or picking a side because there's no such thing. Uh, there can't be such a thing at the moment in Europe. Well, we're coming close to the end of the podcast now, and I'd like to ask you a question um, that I ask at the end of every podcast, which is what is the one thing in your area of research and expertise that you'll be looking for in the next 12 months that you think our listeners should be aware of and keep an eye on? Maybe you in first. Well, personally, I'm, I'm going to be very focused on on AUKUS, but um, in, in reaction to what Hugo and uh, and Nick have said, uh, actually, I think on this key question of of the future for Europe in Asia, the key developments are likely to be internal to Europe uh, and between Europe and the United States in agreeing a, a, a division of labour that that, that that maximizes the the Europe the European contribution. We haven't talked much about Germany so far, but Germany, of course, has, has just been through an election and uh, appears to be uh, changing its line on, on, on China subtly from, from that under um, Chancellor uh, Merkel. Uh, as I understand it, there is a, a German commitment to continue deploying alternately the Navy and the Air Force, which will go to Australia 
uh, next year the furthest that the Luftwaffe has, has ever ventured uh, east. So that seems quite promising in terms of, of an Indo-Pacific commitment. Again, Germany as an, an orphaned um, European power can't achieve much. It does need a, an overarching uh, command and control mechanism to that. Uh, whether that will run through through the EU or NATO or, or with some dotted lines to the Indo-PACOM uh, command in the US, yet to be determined. But I think uh, that's more important than having pell-mell assets deployed irregularly. I think the key uh, point for the region is to have a regularity of presence and a coherence to it, because it's the old Henry Kessinger question that always begs itself, who do you call in, in Europe? Uh, you only you want to be dealing with with a uh, you know the sense that this is a, a a coordinated activity and it will be welcome, uh, but it will be inefficient if it's done too competitively between different different parts of Europe. I can't leave without mentioning the Dutch uh, mayor. So um, <laughs> the fact that the Dutch were embedded in the in the UK carrier group, I think, was a very important symbol that the UK hadn't entirely burned its bridges post-Brexit to uh, European powers. And I think that uh, uh, that, that was, um, that was in, in, important. Um, as I said, it seems to be mainly Northern European countries at, at the moment. I think the, the internal balance in Europe would be to get the Southern European countries more involved. I, I'm not optimistic on that, but I think that's the challenge I've laid down for, for Paris. Nick? Um, well, I think in terms of looking look, looking to the future um, over, over the next year or so, uh, particularly a, a reference to the Indo-Pacific, um, uh, Ewan mentioned at, at the outset that there'd be there's, there's been this extraordinary kind of coalescence of of naval activities, group group activities, multinational uh, uh, activities, in spite of the, the challenges of. Um, of, of COVID, uh, and, and I think that is important. I think that is a a step change in in in, in naval postures in 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 the region because of the uh, concerns about uh, the, the you know the contested environment and and, and competition. And, and what I will be looking for really is is the extent to which that. Uh, if you like, what I would what I would call task group think of you know um, uh, being. Uh, being able to come together and, and 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 deliver those sorts of capabilities to send a strategic message of engagement and and cooperation, uh, which is I think um, deliberate. Whether that will be sustained, and uh, as a corollary to that, for the, for some time I've been saying that uh, as far as the Chinese Navy is concerned, the PLAN, um, we may be on the cusp of a step change as far as uh, they are concerned in terms of being able to deliver a, a, a step up in, in formations and, and, and capability to deploy at range. And I'm looking to see when that will happen. Um, and uh, and it, it may be sooner rather than later. Um, as, uh, as a further corollary to that and, and a signaling of intent as far as the, the PLA is concerned, uh, we, we will probably see at some point in the next year the, the emergence, at least the launching, of the next Chinese carrier, which itself will be a a step up in capability compared to the uh, the sort of semi prototypes that they've been de de deploying now. It'll it'll take time to get it into service, uh, but I think that will that will um, that will reverberate when that happens as well. Thank you, and Hugo. 
Can I be a terrible guess and ask for two answers? <laughs> Briefly, yes. <laughs> Briefly. Uh, I think the first thing I'll be looking uh, forward to will be um, where exactly will Francis Carrier go next? Uh, we know he typically goes in a yearly deployment called Operation Clemenceau, um, often to the Indian Ocean, less often so um, to the Pacific. So where will he go next? Will it really be an illustration of Francis' commitment to the Indo-Pacific or to another uh, region? And if he does go to the Indo-Pacific, where exactly? Will it go and will it finally move past Singapore? Um, the second thing will be Francis said to all the presidency of the European Union, um, I think in January for the next six months. Um, I'm interested in what France will do with that time regarding the Indo Pacific and how it could perhaps use that opportunity to um, increase or uh, support the increase of European activities in the region. We know that the European Union isn't exactly the base framework for collective initiatives in the realm of defense and security. But we've also seen that uh, coalitions of the willing within Europe can work somehow. Um, that has been demonstrated in the Persian Gulf with the MSO. And we've also seen that in the Gulf of Guinea with the uh, European coordinating presence. Uh, perhaps we'll see something similar in the Indo-Pacific one day. Fantastic. Well, Ewan, Nick, and Hugo, thank you for joining us on the show today. And we look forward to reading more of your work and following more of your analysis online on this topic. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to read more analysis on the subject of European maritime security engagement in the Indo-Pacific by Ewan, Nick, and Hugo, you'll find more information on the IISS website on www.iiss.org. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you and see you next time.